All right, everyone. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. Each week, I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities. And today, I'm speaking with Zach Prince, CEO and co-founder of lending platform BlockFi. Should be a good one, so let's dive right in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back. Uh, I am Ryan Selkis at 2 Bit Idiots, and uh, this is hosted by Masari at Masari Crypto. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, Token Soft and Token Tax. You might be wondering why why the plug for Token Tax still? Well, tax day is over, but if you had to file an extension, it's never too late to do the right thing and stay out of jail by paying your taxes. So, um, thank you again to Token Tax and Token Soft. Um, today, I am very excited to have a conversation that has been on everybody's mind right now uh, around crypto lending, how to actually earn interest on these otherwise dead assets. And today I'm joined by Zach Prince, who's the co-founder and CEO of BlockFi here in New York. Um, We're off to already an amazing start because he and I are wearing exactly the same shoes. Um, So impeccably dressed. Or basic. Or basic, depending on on your perspective. Um, And generally on the right path and and working in a really hot uh, sector of the market that I'm sure a lot of people are going to have questions about. so, uh, Zach, why don't we start with the origin story? So, your your backgrounds, how um, you came from BlockFi, and and a little bit about the basics of the product, which we're going to go pretty deep into. But just the one on one to start. Yeah, sure. So, I've uh, uh, I've always worked in venture backed uh, technology companies. I was originally in the advertising technology sector and part of uh, two companies there that were acquired: one by Google, one by uh, Dunhumby, which is actually. Um, where David from Flipside Crypto used to work, mm-hmm. and he was a part of the company that acquired the company that I worked at, and we've now like recrossed paths. And uh, I know you had him on a podcast yeah, recently yeah, too. Yeah. Um, uh, and then more recently and more relevantly for BlockFi, I've been in the fintech world, specifically the online lending side of fintech at two different mm-hmm. companies. One that was a middleware layer for the online lending sector that aggregated data, and we had some technology services. We built a few regulated entities. And we worked with Lending Club, SoFi, Prosper, all the largest online lenders, and then institutional investors who were either buying those loans or lending to those platforms. Um, and then I also worked at a consumer lender that integrated with retailers at the point of sale uh, to finance large ticket purchases for people that had um, low FICO scores or no FICO score because they were mm-hmm. uh, international, for example. Um, I started investing personally in crypto in uh, early 2015. I whiffed it. Um, I bought Bitcoin around 300 and sold it at 600. It's not a complete whiff, but it was a whiff based on the the price that I had to buy Bitcoin back at. Um, And I just went progressively further and further down the rabbit hole throughout uh, Mm -hmm. 2015 and 2016. And at a certain point, my wife said, you're talking about this way too much. You should go find some other people to talk to about this because I don't want to talk about it this much. Um, and in early 2017, after getting more involved in the community and seeing what was going on, I just decided I had to do something full-time. Uh, given that I had been working in the online lending sector, debt and credit was kind of uh, the first thing that popped into my mind. And so the original idea for BlockFi was to build debt and credit products for the crypto market. Mm-hmm. Um, that vision has expanded a little bit since then, but it's, it's, it's where we started. And so 
In 2018, we brought our first product to market, which is the ability to get a US dollar loan secured by the value of your cryptocurrency. I actually had a funny experience with a bank in 2017 where I listed Bitcoin and Ether on my financial statement that I submitted to them and they, you know, not only didn't value it, but they freaked out a little bit. So I thought that uh, being able to lend against these assets was something that needed to happen and a, large, a logical place to start. Um, so 2018, we raised uh, 60 million across debt and equity. We were the first company to get an institutional credit facility to support crypto-backed loans. Um, and then at the beginning of this year, we launched our second product, which is the interest account. Mm -hmm. um, so providing the ability for crypto owners to earn interest on their crypto in crypto. Um, and that interest that we're providing to depositors is created by uh, institutional lending activities uh, that, that we're conducting where we're facing uh, you know, large financial institutions that want to borrow crypto for various reasons. And then <clears throat> longer term, what we're planning to do is uh, continue on these themes, but uh, build out a diversified suite of products that fall under a wealth management or, or retail banking umbrella. So you'll see us um, launching uh, additional functionality around uh, wealth management for your crypto assets. Mm -hmm. We're planning on launching a credit card where you can earn Bitcoin rewards instead of airline miles or cash back. And then longer term, we think there's some really interesting opportunities with dollar-backed coins to offer just normal banking services, sand crypto to parts of the world where they haven't necessarily been available before in dollars. So. One or two things. Yeah. Um, let's let's take those piece by piece, though. Yeah. So you say sixty million was raised for starters. We should break that out because SoFi, a number of other peer-to-peer -peer lenders, you see the big numbers. You're still a Series A company, right? Correct. So, so the sixty million is. Have you disclosed how much of that is the credit facility? Yeah, fifty is the credit facility, and then ten was the equity slot. Correct. Okay. Um, and so that fifty million. What's the duration on that? Because. Um, they're in, in the lending markets uh, within crypto, it's basically overnight rates. There's perpetuals on BitMEX, which is the lion's share of the market. Yep. There's, um, there's perpetual lending on Bitfinex. Um, there are only a few OTC desks that now offer lending services that might have different tenors for these loans. Mm -hmm. But how do you think about that 50 and, and the gradual development of this lending market? Because uh, going from overnight into like structured debt instruments, two very different things, right? Um, yeah. And, and how have you thought about that and, and tackled it? Sure. So um, that facility in particular uh, is committed for two years to purchase loans that meet the eligibility criteria of the facility. Um, every U.S. dollar loan that we've made at BlockFi since inception, we mm -hmm. write to a one-year term. Okay. But our borrowers have the ability to prepay without a penalty at any point along the way. Um, I think that over time we will extend that initial term. Mm -hmm. We elected not to so far because prices are coming down rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, so the cost of that first facility that BlockFi has and in general the cost to borrow against uh, crypto assets has come down since we started. So when we first started making loans, mm -hmm. we were lending at a 14% interest rate. We now make loans at interest rates as low as 4.5%. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we will extend the duration in the future. But at, at the outset, it wasn't smart to, you know, extend a two, three, four, five-year loan uh, and lock someone into a price that, um, you know, was inevitably going to come down. Yeah, and, and it's it's come down rapidly, right? And yeah. and so um, there is, I think, more and more talk about coming up with with um, reference rates uh, for for 
what's actually happening in the lending market, in part because of the early opacity, but now just because there are, there's more competition. Mm-hmm. You were able to lend at 14% because there wasn't anyone else in town, right? That's right. Um, and, and so that's going to come into some type of equilibrium. How do you, um, how do you think about pricing risk in this market in particular? Because um, the existing you know, credit markets uh, are pretty healthy, generally speaking, and interest rates are low. So um, you can envision a scenario where many early lenders get into trouble by mispricing risk and end up blowing up. Um, and with, with the spread coming down between you know, what you're able to do on day one versus you know, what's available now, um, that risk management becomes much more important. And the target customer here that's using crypto's collateral, by definition, has outsized risk exposure maybe versus a, a, a traditional borrower. Um, what what tools do you have or are you working with third parties to assess that um, individually? Is that part of the special sauce? So there's a couple different things uh, to segment there in terms of how to think about that risk. Mm-hmm. So there's on the US dollar lending side, um, when we're lending dollars to largely retail or smaller corporates secured by their crypto, um, there are a few things that we need to uh, check from an underwriting perspective. They're mm-hmm. not FICO score related, uh, but it's a very low risk type of lending. Basically, the only thing you need to be worried about is um, do they have this Bitcoin because they stole it from someone and therefore it's not theirs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and are you able to properly source liquidity in the event that you need it uh, if prices are falling and you need to sell some of their crypto because they're not responding to a margin call? Yep. Um, so the risk management on that side, our system has performed perfectly since we started lending, and it's, it's pretty clear cut. Additionally, when you're lending crypto, if you're getting collateral uh, above the value of the crypto that you're lending, it's the same risk management, but just in reverse. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to start developing rate curves for Bitcoin, uh, there's kind of two ways that you can do it. One is you can look at the futures market, and if you um, go back maybe like five or six years there used to be what was called a gold forward rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was derived from uh, the implied borrow cost in the gold futures market. Now, right now, the Bitcoin futures market activity is concentrated in the in the front month. So there's like no, there's very limited duration. And it's basically just CME. And, and it's basically, well, there's CME and there's, uh, you know, BitMEX and BitFlyer and others. Um, do Dramatically they, different counterparty risks yeah. uh, in terms of um, mm-hmm. you know CME versus anyone uh, anyone else that's uh, trading crypto futures right now on their platform. Kraken also has uh, futures available. Um, but you're, you're talking about the rate curve. Uh, um, do they have longer dated uh, debt instruments or or, or, or um, lending so, products? So you can because, look at you can look at the futures price relative to the current spot price. Sure. And when futures are uh, in backwardation, mm-hmm. uh, you can calculate a rate by comparing the one month to the three month to the six month to the 12 month. Now, the CME, I believe, goes out to a year, mm-hmm. but there's no volume. Yeah. All the volume is concentrated in, in the front month. Yes. Um, so that's one way you can build a rate curve. You can that's all anybody thinks about in crypto anyway. It's just like, <laughs> am I going to make her, make her lose money in the next 30 days? Yeah, so that's one way you can think about it. Another way that you could create a rate curve uh, is if you can build up a, um, a large number of credit-worthy borrowers who are willing to borrow in crypto. So they're mm-hmm. willing to borrow Bitcoin, have a liability in Bitcoin, um, and Arthur Hayes was actually talking about this recently on uh, another podcast. And 
Uh, I think he's kind of leaning that direction in terms of where the Bitcoin rate curve might come from. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm leaning a bit more towards uh, the, the futures market angle right now, just in terms of my guess of where we'll start to see one uh, be derived from. Mm -hmm. um, but what that would look like if you're doing it unsecured is you have you know, BitMEX, for example, or Coinbase or other kind of logical crypto borrowers um, putting a bond of sorts out there at a certain duration and paying a rate on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could start to see a rate, a rate curve based on credit quality. So you could see a rate curve for you know, a, a AAA type borrower versus a rate curve for uh, you know, maybe a less credit worthy borrower, uh, again in Bitcoin. And so um, in terms of how BlockFi handles the risk management and making sure that we're not one of the groups that you think will inevitably blow up, you have to be sophisticated at managing both types of risk. Um, you have to be sophisticated at managing the collateralized risk, having access to liquidity and a system that's able to source that liquidity very quickly if and when you need it. And then you also need to have the ability to underwrite counterparty risk from a credit perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have people on our team, most notably our chief risk officer, who was previously uh, managing director and prime brokerage at BAML, uh, and our director of operations who built out the uh, SEC lending desk at Guggenheim that have built a counterparty risk credit framework for BlockFi. Um, and right now, in any situation where we're lending to someone and they're not posting collateral above the value of the crypto that they're borrowing from us, we're insanely conservative. We're like more conservative than- well, You can be too, right? Because we can, the market's right. just developing and, and, and there is still, I think, probably gonna be some, some rate compression and as people figure out the, the risk management component of this. That's right. Um, before, before we go too much further, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm finance, you know, degree and, and worked in venture capital. We just threw a lot of terms out yes. that, that maybe I'm sure uh, uh, are, are, are not uh, as well known because folks in crypto are not necessarily as, as uh, financial savvy in, in terms of um, financial engineering or, or, or the debt markets in particular. Um, so easy one, duration, right? Just the length of the loan. That's right. Um, or more or less. Yep. Um, the, um, the rate curves that you're talking about are just the delta between rates for an overnight borrow versus 30 days versus 90s, you know, so on. That's right. Um, uh, define backwardation. So backwardation is when the price to buy Bitcoin in the futures market mm -hmm. is cheaper than the current spot price. So if, for example, Bitcoin's trading at 5,000 on Coinbase on the USD pair, but you can buy a April Bitcoin future for 4,900, mm -hmm. uh, then that would be a market that's in backwardation. The way that you can calculate an implied yield from that is by uh, taking that $100 and amortizing it over a month relative to uh, the $5,000 current price of Bitcoin, and then you have an implied yield. Mm -hmm. um, right now, futures... And, that's, and, and, and the important thing there is that's not necessarily an indication of an unhealthy market. This happens in traditional... Com commodities, as a, well, commodities as a general rule trade in backwardation. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and, and that especially makes sense when there is um, a rate on the dollar mm -hmm. because there's a carrying cost that you're forgoing by not yes. just sitting in cash. Yep. Um, so you would expect uh, Bitcoin if... Um, if the use case for Bitcoin moves more uh, over time towards the digital gold commodity angle and not mm -hmm. the money angle, you would expect um, that all other things equal, it would trade in backwardation in the futures market like other commodities like yep. gold and silver and, and others. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the, uh, the last one that we talked about, just to, to help people understand the difference between what you are offering versus what a BitMEX is offering. So the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of BitMEX's business is perpetuals, right? Correct. So they, they settle every eight hours, I believe? I think it's, yes, uh, I think it's six. Is it six I could now? Be wrong. Oh, I don't man. Know if it's six or eight. It's, it's I'm really, not sure. I, th- I thought I just looked at it. I thought it was eight, maybe it's six. I could um, be wrong. I haven't so, traded on BitMEX. So, in a long can, time. can you explain the difference between the perpetual design? Um, you, you know, they might be taking different risks in terms of unsecured borrowers, and they, they're handling that a little bit differently. But, but in particular, the perpetual design versus uh, the BlockFi model. Sure. So, um, the, the biggest difference is that BlockFi is lending physical Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. when we're lending it to someone. Uh, so we're moving Bitcoin over the Bitcoin blockchain, sending it to someone else, whereas on BitMEX's system, it's all closed and they're able to, via uh, perpetual swaps, facilitate leverage both long and short. So you can get more exposure to market movements than the actual equity that you've put up and all of the equity is denominated in Bitcoin because that's the only currency you can put in and out on BitMEX. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also a lot more leverage available on BitMEX than any amount of leverage that uh, working with BlockFi could ever facilitate uh, just based on the ratios and how. how And and so this brings up callable and and Um, non-callable, right? So so, um, if you get margin called on BitMEX because the price moves against you. Um, then your li- your position can get liquidated, right? So, um, in terms of the uh, the the loans that you are facilitating, are they callable in that regard um, or non callable? What's the what's the segmentation right now? Uh, when we're lending USD, uh, there is a defined structure for uh, margin calls and then uh, max loan to value ratios. And mm-hmm. there's different things that happen at each one of those ratios. So at the margin call ratio, what happens is our borrowers have 72 hours to either post more collateral as security or pay down their loan or take no action. And if they take no action and at the end of 72 hours, the price is not recovered, we will sell some of their collateral to rebalance their LTV to a healthy ratio. Mm-hmm. Additionally, if during that 72 hour margin call window, the price uh, falls further and the max LTV ratio is hit, our system will automatically sell enough of the crypto that's been posted as collateral to bring their LTV back down to the margin call level. Mm-hmm. So you've got one thing that happens at the margin call and then another thing that happens at a more accelerated LTV. And if that accelerated LTV is hit, you go back to the margin call level. And our risk management system just does that 24-7. Um, we have a similar function on the crypto lending side when we're lending crypto secured by dollars, except that our system, rather than selling Bitcoin to rebalance the LTV, is buying Bitcoin when Bitcoin prices are moving up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the exact same design. It's the exact same type of mechanism. Um, so, yes. Um, there's uh, a couple important things here to unpack. Um, so, one, where are you getting the reference data to trigger these events? Um, there, well, maybe I'll start with the second question, which is um, the market has not really moved against you. Uh, you the started the company oh. in twenty early 2018, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, summer of 2017, we started. 
Made our first loan, made our first USD loan January 2018. Okay. So the majority of the loans you facilitated mm-hmm. uh, outside of maybe the first year or so testing, which which will probably uh, yield some pretty interesting in- insights for this question, but um, the majority of the loans that you facilitated have been originated while the market is um, moving in the, back in the right direction, positive territory. So you would expect your your borrowers um, that have posted collateral in crypto have done well and have not really been uh, subject to margin calls yet because everything has stayed above water. Um, when the market turns south, have you seen, uh, have you gotten any evidence in terms of how that's going to impact the borrowers and default rates um, and actually trigger your risk management system to, to start liquidating some of these positions. Because I remember you know, previous lending products in the last um, bear cycle were not nearly as sophisticated, but it was still difficult to figure out why someone would, how that system would work at scale mm-hmm. if there was a price correction of say 10% a week, mm-hmm. right? And, and some folks were levered too highly and, and, and began to face margin calls. Sure. So there's um, there's a lot that goes into uh, on a layer above those LTV ratio levels. Just looking at total exposure relative to liquidity at certain price bands uh, that basically acts as a um, as a maximum exposure that we're willing to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have kicked the tires on our risk management system because uh, when we started lending in January of 2018, we were lending USD secured by crypto. So in that type of loan, your risk management system gets its tires kicked when crypto prices are falling, and you know we you know we're down a fair amount in 2018. The most um, the the largest scale event that we experienced was actually during Thanksgiving uh, on sure. the 6k to 3k Bitcoin drop. I think there was a 24-hour period there where it was down well over 10%, um, and our system performed as designed. So mm-hmm. every time that max LTV was hit, we were able to you know, get liquidity um, and sell crypto. But one of the things that uh, we learned coming out of that uh, was that flexibility is important, not necessarily in the design and implementation of the system, but in what you do afterwards. So we had a couple of clients who you know, uh, hit the margin call level around 7 p.m. on Thanksgiving night and the max LTV level around 6 a.m. the day after Thanksgiving. And you look back at that and you go, well, that that just doesn't feel like an appropriate amount of time to be able to respond to a margin call. Um, and one of the you know benefits uh, of um, operating the company in the way that we are is that we were able to make some you know relationship-based decisions in terms of how we would handle that. Um, it's not a you know smart contract where everything is a is a hard line in terms of mm-hmm. what you have to do after your risk management system takes certain actions, um, and as a result, we were able to do things for uh, some of our clients that um, you know wouldn't be an option if it were a decentralized or smart contract only platform or even um, an exchange that doesn't have you know customer service that's available to speak with you. Um, 
on the crypto lending side, so when we're lending crypto and it's secured by dollars, where our risk management system tires are, are kicked when the market is going up, mm -hmm. uh, we have also tested that a little bit because we started scaling that side of the operation uh, alongside the launch of the interest account in January, and we had a you know fun little 20% pop pretty recently, which mm -hmm. uh, was great. Um, so uh, we, we've kicked the tires on both. Um, you, there's a layer above those different cutoff thresholds that you have to always keep in mind, which is your max exposure relative to um, liquidity availability in the market uh, over time. Um, and you know we've been happy with the results so far. Uh, we've never we've never had a late payment. We've never had a loss. We've never had anything you know go even remotely close to wrong. So it's so far. So, so far. <laughs> um, you touched on. Uh, well, first, who are you using for a reference rate? Or do you have your own reference rate, um, or, or which index provider are you using? Uh, I think we use two now. So we used to have only we used to have only one. Mm -hmm. uh, now we use two. Um, I don't want to say the name because I might say it wrong, but I can tell you what it is later. I didn't pick them. Got it. Okay. Well, we'll, but we switched from so we you know we, we'll, we'll catch up on that offline. We evolved from uh, we evolved from. Building our own, which mm -hmm. is what we were doing on day one, and it was a combination of uh, three uh, exchanges with USD pairs to one index provider plus what we had built to now two index providers. Um, and the key thing there just is just for that, redundancies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Exactly. Um, how do you think about the decentralized lending market? So we touched on this a little bit in, in your your last response. So there's a, a human discretion element that's probably pretty important. Um, when you're trying not to um, come up with system-wide outages or, or catastrophic, you know, black swan events that are just triggered by uh, smart contracts, um, you would expect the uh, decentralized lending rate to be higher long-term than centralized. Correct? Um, I would say it depends. <laughs> uh... It's, it's unclear right now what to expect. Um, so I think that centralized systems will have the ability to uh, price things above or below where an actual market would be mm -hmm. uh, if they want to, which can be a valuable tool to have if you're thinking about um, delivering a better or worse rate to a certain type of customer that is more or less valuable to you for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, we're still so early in the evolution of debt and credit markets for crypto and certainly in the evolution of the decentralized lending platforms um, that, that it's hard to say. And you know, the most kind of top of mind example for me right now at least is MakerDAO, who you know, when I originally learned about that platform, I was like, well, how the hell are we gonna compete with this decentralized credit facility that's um, lending a dollar that they're printing out of thin air and they're charging 50 basis points a year for it. And I spent like three days where I was just like, I, you know, we, we might just need to shut this thing down. It's not going to work. But mm -hmm. um, what BlockFi is doing in terms of our strategy is that we don't, we don't believe that uh, lending in a silo is enough to build a company as big as the company that we strive to become. Mm -hmm. um, as a result, we are uh, aggressively creating new products, um, and the next two products that, that we're creating don't fall under uh, a bucket that a decentralized lending platform would even be able to create, because 
Um, you, you need to have uh, compliance, you need to have certain licenses to be able to offer them, you need to have very strong banking relationships. And so that's how we're planning on differentiating ourselves. But we do think of uh, DeFi as a potential channel for us to generate yield from the pool of crypto that we have on deposit with us. Uh, we have not done any you know, lending on DeFi to date, but we're monitoring it very, very closely. Uh, we're certainly testing it you know, personally all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and over time, as it scales and is more and more tested, we'll you know, potentially be an, an active participant in those markets as well. Just really depends on liquidity uh, as well. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think the the, the uh, DAI ecosystem is still what seventy five million mm -hmm. DAI, some, something like that. Um, so um, you have both retail and institutional customers um, and, and users. So both on the lending and, and borrowing side, um, is there is there a split um, either direction? Is it is it pretty mixed? How do you think about um, getting retail money in and, and, and how that um, uh, juxtaposes with the institutional business? Because you've seen uh, some of the quote-unquote peer-to-peer lenders uh, over time. They ended up just being excellent um, business funnels for the major investment banks, right? <laughs> so it, it, at first it was, oh, like, you know, I'm just six-pack, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, lend this money out via this platform. I'm going to make a nice yield, and over time, it's like no, the banks just took their risk teams and, and found all the gems in, in these peer-to-peer -peer platforms, and then they gobbled it all up for themselves. Yeah, or just built one themselves. In or just the case built of one Goldman themselves. and Marcus. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, um, uh, have you seen that a similar dynamic uh, materializing with your uh, book of business, or is it skew? Is it pretty evenly balanced? What's the skew? So we think of uh, we don't think of institutions as being our client in the same way as retail is our client. Mm -hmm. we, we work with them. We have a uh, relationship with them that necessitates a high degree of communication and service from BlockFi. But um, if you look at you know like a, a map of our products, uh, and, and I'm happy to share this if we have like show notes or something. But we basically have products that we create for retail, which is who we believe is our core customer. Mm -hmm. And then activity that we conduct with institutional markets to facilitate the delivery of those products to retail. So to stick with the you know, lending club or peer-to-peer -peer lending example, um, what that market learned, if you were someone that was uh, building a platform to lend, was that having capital in a peer-to-peer -peer construct was uh, wildly less efficient than just being able to raise you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in one shot from an institution, mm -hmm. and you could get a lower cost of capital by working with institutions. So as soon as institutional capital started coming into that space, the model completely evolved away from being peer-to-peer, -peer. and we started with that mindset. Um, we felt that uh, our USD borrowers were going to be largely retail or smaller corporate, and that our capital should come uh, from institutions. Um, so that's how we think about it. Um, so we don't really, there's not a number of like, you know, 50% of our clients are uh, institutional and 50% are retail. We think all of our clients are retail. We bucket some smaller corporate uh, mm -hmm. or maybe really smaller funds into a retail category. So call it like sub, you know, 20 million AUM mm -hmm. uh, type, of, uh, type of size. And then we work with retail to facilitate the, or we work with institutional rather, sorry to facilitate the delivery of the products that we're creating with our core retail customer in mind. You mentioned a few additional products um, that you think that you're going to be rolling out in the coming quarters, years. Um, 
where what, what's next on the product roadmap? Um, so the you know you've had a busy 2019 already. Um, anything coming up in Q2, uh, Q3? What's what's next? Yeah, a couple things. I uh, mean, Q2 we're we're doing a lot of uh, kind of uh, feature releases and optimization of our current user experience, largely around. Uh, security, so 2FA, whitelisting, the ability to list a beneficiary in your account, those types of things. Um, and then at the end of Q2, we're going to have our uh, third-party API available so that other companies in the ecosystem could connect to BlockFi, offer access to the interest account or the loan products via their environment, whether that's a wallet or maybe an exchange in an emerging market. Mm -hmm. And then in Q3, we're going to be uh, launching a fiat on an off-ramp uh, for buying and selling crypto and we think there's a couple of kind of novel angles that we can bring to that uh, most notably the ability to create a US dollar income stream from your crypto holdings so earning interest on your Bitcoin in Bitcoin is great but some of our users have uh, expressed an interest in taking that Bitcoin that was paid to them as interest and turning it into dollars and sending it to their bank account mm -hmm. um, so we're gonna have that coming out in Q3 and then the, the credit card with Bitcoin rewards is slotted for Q1 Excellent. So we're, we're going to keep working hard. A lot of good stuff coming out. Uh, Zach from BlockFi, you can check him out uh, at the real BlockFi, right? Yep, that's right. Not, not to be confused with the fake BlockFi. Uh, and the website is? BlockFi.com. It's a .com. They, they sprung for the .com. We could learn something from you, man. Um, all right, guys. Uh, this, is, uh, this has been fun. We'll have more on the show notes, and uh, I'm sure we'll do an update again soon. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you soon. Until next one, peace. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.